You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. This podcast is sponsored by Gong. Gong empowers your entire go-to-market organization by operationalizing your most valuable asset, your customer interactions. Transform your organization into a revenue machine by unlocking reality and helping your people reach their full potential. Get started now at gong.io. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Mottier, and I'm here today with Pete Crosby, executive coach and founder of Pete Crosby Revenue. How are you, how are you doing today, Pete? I'm good. It's great to meet you, mate. Great to meet you too. As I've already met you, kind of weirdly, because I was watching some of your video, not live and delayed, but I do recognize you, a big fan. You were a coach on one of the Sales Impact course, and it was extremely valuable. And today, we will be speaking about how companies can get their go-to-market strategy right. So that's that's a bit of a topic on itself. Before we get going, would you mind just introducing yourself, Pete, and, and, and telling a little bit about your, your company, but also your background? Yeah, I'm not sure we can answer that question in 30 minutes, but we'll give it we'll give it a try. And my background is as a four times revenue leader. So back in the day, I was at a dot com that we sold eventually. I moved to a social network. We were talking earlier. I was based in Paris for five years, running that, and then went to Beijing in China for almost two years. Once we did our IPO, took some time out and then did the bit that I probably enjoyed the most, which was join a startup first in the travel space, around about two and a half million dollars of AR, and we went up to 10 mil in about 18 months. And then I joined an e-commerce business and we did the same thing there in about two years. And honestly, I'd still be there today. It's a fantastic business. They're called Ametria. But my, my eldest daughter got quite sick. I decided to um, stop working with my wife, take the time at home, which is what we did in Jan of 2020. As everyone knows, in March, the whole world decided, hey, let's work from home. And I got contacted for advice. My daughter had an op. It went quite well. 20-year-old girls don't want to hang out with their dad for their whole life. So I did some advisory work. Now I do three things. So the first is coaching. And I'm coaching 40 CEOs, founders, CROs, VP sales from the Bay Area, right across to Israel, lots of people in the UK. And that means coaching, mentoring, advising, working with those organizations. I advise a lot of the five organizations and then I teach. So I teach the course we were talking about, the Definitive Guide to Revenue Leadership. And that's a 24 lecture course that I wrote with Mandy Cole, who was the CRO at Zenefits. We have guest lectures from Mark Reberge, um, author of Sales Acceleration Forum, uh, the Sales Acceleration Formula and the principal at Stage 2 Capital, Elisa Fink, who was the CMO at Tableau, Greg Holmes, who was the CLO who scaled Zoom up to the IPO. So really high level of CROs. And the bit that's exciting me right now is I am currently in the process of interviewing the world's top 100 chief revenue officers and incorporating all of their theories and frameworks into the next version of the course. So recently I've interviewed CROs at Adobe and Cisco and AWS and Shopify and all sorts of other very, very cool, very successful companies, taking all of their learnings and applying those to the course as well. So we can try and deliver something that isn't just what Pete and Mandy think, but this time, this is what uh, the world's best revenue leaders think about how you uh, should scale up your organization. Well, I think it's felt said you like to keep busy bit. Okay. Uh, it's quite a few things that you're looking at the moment. So that, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get onto the, the, the course next Tuesday. Really, really enjoy the first one. 
so coming back to, to, to the conversation today and, and the go-to-market and how to get it right, it, it's often that we see SaaS businesses, you know, turning towards their sales and marketing team when a product is not selling or when the growth is not as, as, as expected by the founders or the CEO or the PEs or the VCs or whoever is backing and giving money to the company. But sometimes it may not be the sales or the marketing efficiency. It could be the fact that there is underlying issues with the product or the go-to-market strategy. So that kind of led me to my first question to you, which are, you know, what are the fundamentals that companies need to get right when it comes to go-to-market strategy? Yeah, it's such a relevant question. Probably not everyone, but almost all organizations that have approached me have at some point in that approach said something like, we've got this sales issue or we've got this marketing issue. I remember one specifically, um, they said to me, now we've got this problem with our proposals. Uh, they're not converting to the next stage in the pipeline. Like we write this proposal, we listen to their pains and their problems. We write the proposal, we send it out, but the conversion from that point to the next point isn't right. Can you help us to get our proposals right? And it's probably an extreme example, but almost without fail, including in this example, it's nothing to do with how well you write the proposal. Probably you could write it better. Probably you could write it worse. It's probably all right. Fundamentally, if sales and marketing teams are struggling, there is a very high chance that it sits somewhere deeper in product market fit or in the way the go-to-market uh, team and, and strategy has been structured in the first place. So I go through a series of questions with organizations. They vary depending on the organization, but typically what we discover is there is something in the core value of the organization, are they able to articulate what makes them truly mission critical? In other words, the thing that, that solves that hair on fire problem that organizations have, can they solve that and articulate it really easily and succinctly? And second, uh, what is it about the way they solve the pro that problem that makes them rare? Normally not unique. It's unusual to be unique. It might not even be desirable to be unique. Maybe you're very early if you're unique, but are you rare in the way that you solve the problem? If you think about that as a chart with a, a y-axis and an x-axis with mission critical going up one scored from one to five and rarity going along the bottom scored from one to five, obviously you want to be in the top right-hand corner. So what are the attributes that represent the core value that make you as rare and as mission critical as possible? And if you can identify those things, then you can start to shape a value proposition that really works. Now, what I tend to discover when I interview um, senior people is most of them can have a reasonably good go at answering these questions. You know, none of them have scaled their business to where they got to without being capable. But often they talk about those things differently. And it means the senior management team aren't communicating in the same way. If they're not communicating in the same way, then good luck to everyone else in the company to be able to talk in the right way about, about the business. So that's often where we start. But there are all sorts of other things that we may discuss today. You know, have they got their ICP right? Often organizations will try to target just too many companies and you end up trying to shape your product or your technology to solve too many use cases. And then you end up doing none of them well enough. Like why not focus on just being the perfect, obvious uh, solution for a handful of organizations? So ICP is really key, getting the value prop right. There's a whole bunch of stuff around that, but often that fundamental core is have we got our products shaped correctly for the market? If that's done well, then probably your proposal is going to convert much better. Uh, and maybe you don't have a problem with the way you've written that proposal in the first place. So, so really it's coming back to what problem are you solving and, and are you, 
I, I agree with you. I think the word unique is probably not the right, the right way, but how do you do it differently? How do you differentiate with, with how people are going after the same problem? So that's the beginning of the framework, right? And, and, and then what would you put after that? Would you say is then it, I guess come the ICP. So once you know what problem you are solving and where you can be unique, you can start to say, okay, here is the business case or the use case, sorry, I want to focus on. Then yes. you define the ICP, i.e. the type of companies, then the individual in the organization. What about the messaging and to engage with them? Because that's then coming to marketings or to kind of the, the, the lead gen team, the pipeline development team. And we see a lot of our clients struggling with that, right? Mm. They, they can't, they I was on a call with a client, uh, a good client of us quite early stage. And we spent one month on a program where we were not satisfied with the results of that first month. We were far below what we would expect from a benchmark perspective. And we were speaking with the, one of the top sales guy, the CEO and, and one advisor, a CRO type of advisor. And basically we just tell them, look, Message is great. We explain what we are doing, but there is no real translation of what does that mean for the target ICP, right? So you explain, so when this is something with four wheels, you know, it's got, it's got like a, something that you turn and it's got something called an engine. And then you put something called petrol and you can go from A to B and that goes quicker than by foot. That goes quicker than the bike. That goes quicker than anything else that you've seen. But what's the, what's it for them? Okay. And as we are speaking, I think he was a CEO. I said, well, we actually do it nine times quicker. And it's actually about solving threat issues. So when you get attacked, when you get a cyber attack, they, they can resolve the root cause nine times quicker. They can find the, the solution nine times quicker, which in my eyes is massive. That's the use case. And that's why you create that moment where people are like, almost that bullshit moment. Well, people are like, no, 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 too good to be true. I can't believe you do that. Yes. That's, that's your, that's how you push them in the net and say, okay, let's engage. But that's the Eureka moment. It was with a specific clients and we discussed and it was an interesting conversation because we really evolved in one hour into something we are all excited about and saying, now we've got a hook, but finding that hook is probably one of the most difficult aspects that we see our client getting. I, I think they kind of figure out through advice by the time they get to us what problem they are solving and how different they are in the way they are solving it. But what they can't explain, and maybe is the lack of references is how do you measure how different they are in a tangible way? So it does, it justify your change. Yeah. Okay. Well, says, so I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but there's two. I don't, sorry. I just dropped it on you a bit. I love that. I love that. That's exactly the kind of conversation that I was hoping that we could have. There are. There are two frameworks probably that are, I, I feel are really relevant there. So I'll, I'll talk about the first one, which really comes before getting the value proposition right. Once you've got this one done, the value proposition becomes easier. So the first one is really about defining what the pain is. You call it the problem, what the pain is that we're actually solving. Now, most organizations are going to give, I'll give you an example, but most organizations that you speak to. If you give them a whiteboard and say, like, stick some post-it notes up there with the pain, they'll come up with a few things. And then you ask them to score it out of 10. And so they'll give you a score, like seven out of 10 here, eight out of 10 here, nine out of 10 here. On what's the framework for this score? So the first thing to do is try and figure that out. So I was inspired. If you, uh, if anyone out there is interested, if you Google McGill 
pain index, you'll find if you've ever spent time in hospitals, you'll see this, the McGill pain index is a zero to 50 pain score for physical pain. So a tension headache, I think is about 11 out of 50 and uh, giving birth like pretty painful, like 25, 30 out of something very painful that my wife has, it's called trigeminal neuralgia. It's a nerve pain down here, which scores 42 out of 50. And then I was doing this exercise with an organization. They told me that they, none of those things are painful. 50 out of 50 is the gimpy, gimpy plant. I'm like, what's a gimpy, gimpy plant? That sounds made up. I said, no, no, Pete, Google it. I Google it. It turns out, guess what? It's an Australian plant and it releases these like, seeds into the atmosphere that you can barely see and they land on your skin and they burrow into your skin and they cause such extraordinary pain that you want to kill yourself. Animals throw themselves off rocks and cliff tops. It's that bad. So if you and I went to an offsite in that part of Australia and I said to you, Hey Ray, can you just uh, like pop into the jungle, get that thing? You're like, no way am I going in there. But if I am, I'm in a hazmat suit. Like the pain is so extreme that you know that you can't handle it. Whereas you and I both know that there are some pains that are minor and you probably go skiing or do something like that, that you enjoy, you know, you might experience pain, but you decide the risk is worthwhile, but a 50 out of 50 pain like that, you decide it's not. So I took that idea and I reshaped it, that McGill pain score, and I reshaped it for uh, B2B sales. What's a 10 out of 10 pain? A 10 out of 10 pain is probably my company will die if I don't solve this problem. So um, Shopify could be a good example of an organization that solves a 10 out of 10 pain. If that goes down, I can't sell stuff. If I can't sell stuff, then eventually I can't pay my staff. I can't buy stock. I'm going to run out of money. My company will go bust. So it's pretty fundamental. I mean, nine out of 10 is that I'm going to lose my job. And that's often a bigger driver, especially in large organizations where people are more disconnected from the, the, the enterprise itself. I don't want to lose my job. I must act. And so you can go down to that scale, right down to one, identifying what uh, the score is for your pain is really important. So that's the first bit. So I'll give you an example. I worked for a company called Triptease. Uh, it's a brilliant business. It works with hotels, 10,000 hotels around the world to enable them to get holidaymakers and business people to book direct on the website. Why? It's cheaper to book direct. It's more expensive to go to the online travel agent like booking.com and, uh, and, and Expedia. But most people don't know that and they tend to go to the online travel agent. The pain that the hotels were experiencing was every month I have to write a check to book in and to Expedia for 15 to 20% of my total bookings. And every month that number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, if I could even keep half of that money, I could spend it on renovating the rooms, providing a new bar, putting in a swimming pool. Like it's a lot of money. So that's the pain. They, they knew that bit. What they didn't do is they didn't connect it to the strategic driver. So this is the steps we go through in, in the exercise. If you've got that pain, well, what's the risk that sits underneath not solving that pain. In the case of hotels, it's, oh, hold on. Every time I get someone coming to my hotel who comes from booking.com, that person, I don't have their mobile phone number. I don't have their email address. I can't write to them beforehand and like sell them more services. I can't try and get them to come back after. So I can't get a repeat customer. We know from research in a book by Chip Connolly, which shows that you spend more if you book direct. So probably you have a more of an affinity with the brand. You chose them directly. You're nicer to their staff when you go. So that's important too. So hotels really want to get this, but it's getting harder and harder. So they're becoming disconnected from that repeat business. So that's the risk. So that goes beyond the pain. But then 
it goes beyond risk to this strategic imperative, which is if that continues next time I want to go to Paris and stay in a hotel in the night salon this one with my wife and I go on booking.com and I get that map feature and I see there's 24 star hotels within my price range or with good traveler ratings, how do I choose? Well, I don't, I just choose the one that's sort of nearest roughly where I want to be. It's, it becomes a commodity. So we go from, I write a big check to booking.com to, I can't get repeat business. So if this continues, I just become commodified. So no, no longer can I do hotels because for the reasons that I wanted to give travelers this wonderful experience. Now I'm just serving my master of booking.com. So once you walk them through that, that moves from a sort of seven out of 10 to an eight out of 10 to a nine out of 10, it becomes really painful. So this is the process that we go through. What's the pain? Score it highly. What's the risk um, of not acting on that pain? As we know, people tend to run away from pain and toward pleasure, but we run away from pain more quickly than we run toward pleasure. And then once we've identified the risk, what's the strategic imperative that sits underneath that driving the pain that I'm experiencing? Articulating that in a really simple way is something that in a moment when we talk about value proposition becomes really important. Yeah, I was about to say this is, this is a fantastic reframing of value setting. You know, it's, what's the cost of doing nothing? What's the risk? How risky is it? You know, and, and, and asking all those questions in a value setting type of, type of approach. So yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the value proposition. Yeah. I think that's the next step now. You, once you've got that, you, you've done that, um, you've done that assessment. How do you, how do you boil it down to those key moments? Well, obviously if you are the earliest stage of the cell cycle, you've got to be able to boil that down to probably three sentences. <laughs> so that's proper, proper boiling down. Yeah. If you have a one hour meeting, of course you can go a little bit more of a questionnaire and, and listening to, 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 to what the prospect says, but let's start with the, with the beginning of the process. I've been interesting to also discuss about go to market strategy and how people are actually we're going to get that for later, but I think salespeople need to be slightly different if you're still figuring out your go-to-market strategy. I think they need to be a little bit more free spirits and be able to land in different places and think on their feet. But let's talk about that later. Let's talk about that value proposition from the scale of pain to the value proposition. How do you push it out and make sure that people are using it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's more than one technique for doing this. The one that I use is a five-step process, which um, it uses as a foundation, those, those pains and risks and strategic drivers that we just spoke about and tries to identify what is the big shift in the world, the paradigm shift that means that we have to act. And uh, until recently, people didn't always understand what a paradigm shift, but if you're leading a business now, you know exactly what a paradigm shift is because we all just went through one. We could have predicted coronavirus, but none of us did. Coronavirus was a paradigm shift for our business. Most of us weren't working from home. We had to work from home. And the consequence of that now is that workforces are used to distributed working. They used to hybrid working. What do we do with our offices? Should I hire someone in Australia to work for me or will they need to come to an office? All of these questions we have. So we know what a paradigm shift is. So what's the paradigm shift in the world? that gives your, uh, your product its meaning. And that's the very first thing to go through. What is the paradigm shift? And I based this, uh, I call this the Raskin matrix. I based it on the work of someone called Andy Raskin, who uh, you probably have read. He wrote this wonderful blog post, the greatest sales deck ever written, 
which was an analysis of the Zewal uh, sales deck. And you can find his analysis on Medium. Just Google it, it'll come up as the number one result. What I did is I took his analysis and tried to turn it into a model for building a value proposition. So the first bit is, what is the paradigm shift? Once you've got the paradigm shift, then the next thing is to identify, well, who wins in that paradigm shift and who loses? So for example, you know, I worked recently for an e-commerce business. I mentioned them earlier, Ametria in the world of e-commerce, uh, the losers tend to be the high street stores that haven't I adopted or succeeded in e-commerce. What happened to Toys R Us, lots of other brands you can think of that disappeared in the marketplace. And those are quite good brands to talk about as losers because they were big and established and they felt like they were never going anywhere and then they did. And yet some organizations succeeded, they won. They uh, broke through, they did great things. You can all think probably of great e-commerce brands that are pure play online, fabulously successful. You can probably think of some high street brands that yeah. have continued to succeed. So what do you do to break through? How do you be the winner and not the loser inside this new paradigm shift? So that's the third step. Uh, what's the common thread that joins the winners together? What did all those winners identify that allowed them to win inside this new world, this new paradigm shift? So once you've got that landed, what should be happening here is that your, your prospect should be going, yes, you're absolutely right. This is exactly what's happened in our world. Or gosh, I hadn't even thought of that. You're exactly right. That's exactly what's happened in our world. You should really be landing a strong point here. That's when you move on to this fourth step, fourth step, which is the concrete criteria, the framework. How do you win in this new world and in this new world? You're drawing out a, a framework here. So that framework says, this is what the organizations that won and succeeded, this is what they did step-by-step step. and like bring it up on a, on a deck and show them how the framework starts to build and establish, show them what your three points, five points, 10 points looks like. They should be able to leave that meeting. Not, they don't have to work with you. They should leave that meeting saying, gosh, that's exactly what we need to do. I don't know if we're going to work with this company or not, but that, can I have the copy of the deck, please? That's awesome. That's exactly what we need to do. Obviously there's a likelihood they will work with you because it was you that shared that. One of my customers says, until we worked with Pete on the Raskin deck, we uh, were seen as a vendor. Now we're seen as a partner and that's because the positioning is, is as an expert, like here's how you win. So. That, that's the fourth step, the concrete criteria. The fifth step then, and probably the easiest one to do for most of us is the social proof. It's the demonstration that you can make this come true. Notice that we haven't pitched our product at all yet. So we started with the paradigm shift. Then we moved to winners and losers. Then we moved to the common thread that joins the winners together. Then we spent time on the frameworks, the concrete criteria that make this real, that's a practical thing that you're sharing. And finally, proof that you can make it come true. So sometimes you'll be sharing your customers or a quote from your customers. In the Zuora example, Zuora share a quote from Aaron Levy, who is the um, CEO of Box, saying, we had a pre-Zuora world and a post-Zuora world. And the post-Zuora world has enabled us to, you know, to succeed. So you share social proof that you can make this come true. Now, psychologically, why do you do it like this? Well, the reason you do this is because none of us like to be sold to, but we don't. If you go into a clothing store and a shop assistant comes up to you and says, hello, sir, can I help you? What do you tend what do you do usually? No, I actually went, I actually went, <laughs> it's a true story. I went to, uh, well, we, we've got listeners from everywhere, but in the UK, we've got shops called Curry's, which 
PC yeah. world are like, uh, the, where you buy your washing machine or your laptop or whatever you want to buy, like iFi or stuff like that. And I actually wanted to get a new charger for my laptop. Okay. So I go into the shop and literally someone comes to me and can I help you? So no, I'm good. Yeah. And then literally I'm like, you know what, actually come back. I need your, <laughs> I was just, I was pre-programmed. It was a prank program. I was not thinking. I was kind of, you know, sleepwalking through the shop. And I said, no, but I'm like, actually, you, you're going to save me time because I know exactly why I'm here. And I don't want to browse around. These shops are, you know, I can get into, I start to look at TV, come back with a new 15-inch TV at home or whatever. You, you don't want to be, in, I'm, I'm a terrible buyer. I buy everything that is new and gadgety. Yes, we so, do. You need to get me out of that shop as soon as possible. I know it. If not, I'm going to get in trouble with the wife. So I just called the guy back and, and literally it was a, it was a very transactional five minutes. It took me exactly what I wanted to get. It was a couple of options available. We discussed about the options. I made a decision, went to a deal, paid, was off. Fantastic shopping experience. I could have spent two hours, probably not buying the right thing and coming back with some other stuff that I don't need. <laughs> so, there you go. So perfect example. Incidentally, the reason that you did that is because you're Pre, your Neolithic, the monkey brain is pre yeah. threatened by someone trying to sell you. So you, we, we sometimes even hold our hand out like, no, it's okay. I'm just looking, I'm just browsing, like get out of my cave. Kind of, kind of, yeah. you kind of figured it out, didn't you? And you went and asked for help. But what tends to happen is you then go and look in the, in the store at all the stuff and you realize, I don't know what I'm looking at. Now I need some help. So you go and find the person and you say, please, can you help me? I'm looking for a charger for my laptop. And they're like, what kind of laptop have you got, sir? Like, what age is it? Oh, it's a, a Mac. Yeah, look, let me take you over to the Apple products. Um, which one have you got? Because it's a different charger for the Air and for the Pro. Oh, I've got a Pro. Well, here you go. So now you're being sold to, but you're perfectly happy because they're selling you something that you need. And this is the purpose of this Raskin-style value proposition. Because what you're trying to do at the end is get them to lower their defenses and uh, eliminate what's called buyer beware. And at that moment, they should say to you something like, have you got anything you could show us? Like, do you have a demo or like, can you walk us through your product? Have you got something we can see? And you're like, oh, I probably could walk you through something. Yeah. Let me, let me put something together for you. Let, uh, I can give you a demo. Let's log on now. I've got a few slides I can show you. And because you've been asked, the defenses come down. Whereas what most, so many salespeople do is they start with the tell, show and tell, you know, show up and slow up, start talking. And as we know rarely works. Show up and throw up. That's exactly what I wanted to get to with, with where I, I was trying to ask you two questions sometimes and I refrain myself from it. I, I think this is perfect. So I personally believe that buyers, they either need to put you in, a, we, we as if you sell them something, you need to either help them to put you in a category and say, this is my category. When are you reviewing what you are doing in that category? And let me get back to you when the timing is right. If you are selling a commodity stuff, you know, a you very commoditized a mobile phone, a car or something like that. I'm not going to sell you a car if you just bought a brand new car six months ago, right? But maybe in five years time, we can speak again. Maybe you tell me why I've got a brand new car, but I'm on the lease and that lease is two years, right? And technically I know it is very difficult with manufacturer to get the parts and everything at the moment from China or whatever. And particularly if you want an electric car because it's in high demands, oh, we should speak in one year. Because you don't know that that's the time frame you need to get the things going and to produce it. So then you start to teach them something new in the process, which, which I think people, it's a consultative sales. I mean, it's been called a lot of things over time, but this is the best way to build a relationship. You build a relationship by giving, 
information, nuggets of knowledge. And, and I love what you are saying because we've got lots of, we've got lots of disruptive customers and it absolutely drives me insane when you just listen to the call that the sales guys go to. So we book a call, we get someone excited. We create that light bulb moment when I, oh, this is how you go about it. What else new, right? Let's come and speak to me. And there is two choices you can make there as a salesperson. You do what you just said, Pete, which is you really go and you speak about the market. You speak about the issue. You speak about what you are seeing. You speak about the shift. You then bring the value and what people are seeing when they go, you know, this is the old world and this is the new world, right? This is what happened in the new world. And this is the benefit of being in the new world. You can stay in the old world. That's okay. Right. But then you create that scarcity, that sort of, mm, do you want to move because the cool kids are going that way, right? Or do you want to stay that way, which is fine. But when you do that, I think you empower people. You can almost rewrite a story in their head that they can then bring to their management. That story will make them look good. You know, mm -hmm. Intel, information, stats on what's happening in the market. This is what every single buyer is looking for. If you actually give them that, which will help you to sell to them because you, you actually give them ammunition to go and look great and know, and you are right. You should never try to sell with the objective of selling, but with, if you've got a real passion about solving the pain, I think that's what, that's, that's where you should focus. Well, this is a, I mean, that in itself uh, is a really good point because you mentioned ICP earlier and there will, in any market. Think about most founders, when they look at their total addressable market, they will be able to explain to a BC or whoever that their, their market is huge. Like it's worth billions, even trillions of dollars. That could be true over, over time. The problem comes when they try to address that market. And the trick is to find the very small group of customers who are going to love the way you solve the problem so much that not only do they buy from you, but they stay for a long time. You yeah. know, as we know in SaaS, what's more important than selling new business is holding onto the business that you've got, because that's how you get the hockey stick curve. That's how you get good net dollar retention. You know, the, the measure that says that this is uh, a product that has product market fit, but the problem comes when we sell to the wrong type of customer. And when you sell to the wrong type of customer, like you sort of solve a bit of their problem. Sales guys sometimes are motivated to sell to anyone because I need to make my quota. So like, please buy from me. But that's the wrong way to think about it and getting an ideal customer profile so that you focus in on a cohort of organizations that all share the same traits. They all behave in the same way. They think in the same way. You mentioned earlier that you're one of those people. I'm the same that you like new gadgets, you like new stuff. So I'll give you an example. I'm wearing one of these. It's an Ura ring. You probably know about them. It's the new one. So they're not, some of the features won't even be available to the summer. I'm okay with that. If I'm a woman, it can put in my periods. Not yet, not till the summer. It can't do that. I'm okay with all of that because I like being an early adopter. I like buying stuff that's new. Equally, there are plenty of customers out there that are going to wait a long time and buy a much later in the process. You know, when it's cheaper, when it's proven to work, when it's one in its category. My father-in-law is a great example. He, I remember a couple of years ago in buying a DVD player for a £19.99 in Asda, like, you know, the UK's version of Walmart. And I'm like, why are you buying a DVD player? Like everyone else is using Netflix and Amazon Prime. He's like, oh, well, I didn't buy one before. So like a laggard, I'm really slow to buy. If you and I were to go out and start making phone calls and, you know, I was to call you and I was to call my father-in-law, 
there's a good chance I'd sell you a new technology. I'm never going to sell him a new technology. You've got to move and you've got to move the mountain. And that's where, you know, you've got to move on from the people that would do not understand the pain. They will be organization and say, you know what? We don't want to move. Mm. We are comfortable where we are. You have countries where maybe Germany and France, you know, people stay in job for 10 years, 15 years. Mm. But there is a reason behind that. You know, the reason why they don't move is probably because they don't take a lot of risk. But they're a bit risk adverse. So how do you get those people to change? Then you need to look at the type of organization. You know, do you, do I want to go and sell to, in France, for example, do I want to go and start a sales process with BNP Paribas? They're actually quite, you know, agile, but not the worst one. Or do I want to speak to one of those new online banks, like the Monzo Revolut type of people who are, you know, bunch of kids, very tech oriented. Those guys want to take the, the, the curve much quicker than the other. They're interested in tech. They want to be, they want to be UPIT. They want to be the first guy to use it. They are not scared about using new technology and the technology that's fully working, but they will develop and they can, you know, have their impact on how it goes, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got those two spectrums. You have to move on from the people that can, that can't move with you, but I think the point that you made is the most important is that I, I don't get it when, if you've got a first meeting with an organization and you are a salesperson, the first thing you do is to take your laptop out and do a demo, like, you know, expecting, look, this is so good that when you see it, it's going to, why don't you spend some time? This is an opportunity to speak about the industry. This is an opportunity to understand what's working, what's not working. This is an opportunity for you to probably ask the question and understand really where the pain is, because, you know, sometimes people reframe the pain. Okay. And they may have a different perspective as to what's painful versus not painful. We could speak about pain thresholds on that zero to 50. And you go to someone and say, oh my God, my headache, that that's 50, yeah. right? Some other people say, an headache, that's fine. I'm a, I'm a functioning alcoholic. And I work with them for the last, uh, for the last 12 years. That's cool. I can deal with it. It's no problem. So I think the threshold is different and you've got to appreciate that. But going there, it's almost like a doctor. You go to a doctor and they say, shush, wait, don't say your word. Don't say your word. I've got exactly the pill you want. Let me take you through what it does. That, shush, it's okay. It's perfect. It's going to solve all your issue. You need to have stop with that situation. Look at the thing. It's, there is no presentation, but what I think is difficult though, at the other end, because I, I think we both agree it is the right things to do. The difficulty that I've seen clients facing, because I think a lot of people would agree that it's the right thing to do. A lot of people may not agree because they will think now sales process needs to be frictionless, frictionless. We need to be the salesforce.com of tomorrow. We need to be the service now of tomorrow, but I think you need to be very established to be really able to have a process that is frictionless. Well, You've got inbound demo, boom, 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 boom. How do you find the salespeople and train them to have those no safety net conversation? Because quite frankly, it takes a specific type of people to be able to sit down in a, in a C-level office or a, a deputy C-level and actually speak about their industry and speak, with, speak about their business. So do you have stories or lifetime example of people who've been able to scale good quality salespeople who can have this good, important conversation because that's, that's an issue that I see in the market. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I would, in my opinion, the quicker you can find process and predictability 
the better. The examples you give of ServiceNow and Salesforce, the way I would be thinking about predictability as a revenue leader in one of those market leading huge publicly listed organizations is very different to how I'd be thinking about predictability in a seed stage or series A business. But I'd still be thinking about how do I prove predictability? By the time a, a venture-backed business gets to series B, it needs to have demonstrated that there's enough predictability that can be scaled up that the capital that they're about to deploy is used in a good way. So that means that there will be a process that you endeavor to make frictionless. Of course, there will always be friction at first, but the process will be a different one to the one you might use in five years time when you are a large yeah. organization. So what you're looking for um, in the early stage businesses is how is the founder doing this? Probably the founder generally not with a sales background, but they're succeeding. So what are they doing that's successful? How do we bottle that and turn it into a process that works? Let's try with a couple of salespeople and see if that works. Let's identify where the problems are, and then let's try and fix those problems until we can get to a point of view where one or two people can take what that founder did so well and succeed. But I'd like to quickly come back uh, to a point that we were talking about earlier. If we need too much magic, then probably we've got a product issue, not a sales issue. The sales um, process should be able to run with a percentage of conversions that are broadly speaking predictable, certainly during that period, series A to B, and I would argue often beforehand, finding the right typology of salesperson is really important then. So to come back to your point, the, the salesperson that is successful in an early stage business isn't necessarily the person that is successful in a later stage business, which is very, very, very process driven. You do need someone who has got flair and creativity. I'll give you an example from Ametria, one of the best salespeople that I had worked for me. I remember that we made a sale to Love Honey. So for those who don't know Love Honey, it's kind of the acceptable face of sex toys and, you know, and, and, and that kind of, that, that kind of stuff and advertised students, you know, that's the kind of branding. Anyway, she went to the meeting with them and she had bought in advance, she'd bought some penis shaped cookie cutters, which she then made cookies the night before she went to the meeting. They loved it. Why did they love it? Because she did something different and unique and unusual. You don't need to do that if you work at Salesforce, but we needed to do that because we need something that set us apart. They thought it was kind of cheeky. It was funny. It wouldn't have worked for a gentleman's clothing brand, but it certainly worked for love, honey. Well, great was that good to make next meeting. Make <laughs> <laughs> her memorable. So that means that she was able to do something creative and different that is useful then. So what's the learning from this for anyone listening? Well, the learning is define you need. What is the typology of salesperson you need? How do you, that quality that she, that she had, I would call that creativity. Yeah. She had a sense of humor and she was fearless, but really what she has creativity. It's a bit of emotional intelligence as well. You know, people that can really room it. And I think it's a mix of qualities of the individual and knowledge of the industry. You know, if you are, it's, it's actually not knowledge of the industry. For me, it's a passion for the industry or passion for what you are doing. If you really believe in the product and you've got a passion for the problem that this, the, 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 this is solving, it's very difficult to not get creative because you've been in so many of these conversations where people are like, yeah, we want to do that, but... Or we'd love to do that, but, and then you, you've got the response to those buts and the response to those buts in a way, if you got long enough, I think they create the creativity, but the, the, the cookies are, it's a fantastic idea. I'm going to think about that. 
last question for you. Common mistake that you see in go-to-market strategy. What was the most common, maybe one, two, three mistakes that you see people making in, in their plans? Yeah. Something that sales leaders frequently do badly is forget about marketing. They forget that you can spin up an outbound team. You can work really hard on building a sales development model. I run these models. I, I approve of these models. They're good. But place to start is how do we get demand? And the more demand we have, the easier it will be for our sales team to take opportunities, um, run them through a process and turn them into closed business. So because sales leaders so infrequently come from a marketing background, they almost forget that one of the places to start is how do we get awareness of our product out in the market? How do we get people to consider the criteria for choosing a product like ours? How do we get people to come to our site and demonstrate intent? Because those people are self-selecting that they're likely to be in our ICP. And that's going to be lower friction and usually lower cost than putting a very expensive sales development team to really work very hard on that. So I'm very pro sales development teams, but I would rather my sales development team worked on the right opportunities than the wrong opportunities. And failing to focus on demand generation is so frequently found in go-to-market and uh, go-to-market challenges. Thank you so much for that. Bit. Lots of incredible insights. Love, love some of the stories as well. Very, very useful. If any of our audience wants to carry on the conversation with you or actually engage with you because they may have an issue themselves with go-to-market strategy, what's the best way to get hold of you, Pete? Send me an email. It's pete.d for david.crosby at gmail.com. Pete.d.crosby. And I will reply to anyone that sends me anything at all. Perfect. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and take care. Thank you. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. This podcast is sponsored by Gong. Gong empowers your entire go-to-market organization by operationalizing your most valuable asset, your customer interactions. Transform your organization into a revenue machine by unlocking reality and helping your people reach their full potential. Get started now at gong.io.